Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a rather deserted Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Martin Cobbold. Martin is the Managing Director of Dealey Fumigation, a professional fumigation firm based in Suffolk specialising in commodity treatments. Uh, Martin, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure, Martin. Now, first and foremost, this podcast is all about the uh, the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? It's an incredibly broad word, isn't it? And um, uh, it, I always have this um, uh, issue with um, with managing larger teams that you, you have to have this sort of meeting of internal dictionaries. And so leadership can mean a very different thing to, to all different people. And you, you can get um, uh, all of these... Uh, different parts of misdirection from all of your different parts of life as to what, what a leader might be. Some people might think it's, you know, the leader of a football team. Some people might think it's a leader of a family. And so leadership can take many different forms from, from many different areas of life. But for leadership in business, for me, and it really depends where you are in your, in your professional life and where your business is in its, in its stage of growth um, as to what a leader uh, needs to be. It's something that needs to be uh, 100% adaptable um, to be able to uh, best serve the uh, the needs of your uh, your employees, uh, your customers, and and your business. Absolutely, and you talk about adaptability there, especially in the context of the here and now and the COVID nineteen outbreak. That adaptability and that ability to be reactive as a business leader is hugely important at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. So mostly you're focusing on being proactive. You're you're meant to be the the future storyteller mm. in a, in a business. But when it comes to a crisis, you know you're, you're you're, you're being asked to uh, press fast forward on this and do everything so quickly. And so all of your, your, uh, your, your daily tasks in being a leader are all condensed right down and you've got to turn it over as quickly as possible. And, and being, a, being a leader, especially in a crisis, I mean, you, you've got to really focus on communication, way more communication than you would do normally. Um, not just with your team, which really be going on daily, um, but also with the, the wider community and your customers. It's times like this that people they, people start reacting very strangely when it comes down to fear. And people can, can kick out, they can panic, they can make irrational decisions. And as a leader, it, it's your responsibility to communicate ideally daily with, with everybody who works for you to, uh, to make sure that everybody's still treading the path that, that was set for them in the first place and making sure that they're, they're not worried at the end of the day that the the future is, is bringing something which is, is dangerous for them, dangerous for the business. So you're, you're there not only as, a, uh, as, as uh, a leader of a business, but sometimes also as a coach, sometimes as a counsellor, um, sometimes just as a, as a good friend to, uh, to help people, people through it. Um, but yeah, also the, the other parts of being a leader in, in a crisis is you've got to recognise the opportunity. You always have to recognise an opportunity in crisis. Um, where most people uh, would, would you know, throw their hands up and think, well, we're done for. Um, you've got to uh, recognise the opportunities to pivot. You've got to recognise the, the different opportunities that a crisis is going to bring. Um, and so, you know, this is, the, this is the chameleon nature of being a leader. Is you, you have to recognise the, the priorities of your enterprise as well as the, the priorities of your team at this time. 
Absolutely. And it brings a lot of uh, necessary qualities under the microscope, doesn't it? I think you have to be a people person to really make sure that people keep sort of treading on that straight and narrow path, as you say. Um, But also it's uh, having a culture in place where everybody's looking at a certain goal in a positive mindset and they're being able to keep themselves self-motivated rather than think negatively about the whole situation. Because there will be opportunities from this for business and there will be positives to take once we do see the light at the end of the tunnel, won't there? Yeah, no, I think it's it's a very important thing to to the the whole business community. Well, I say the whole the the majority of the business community has really made that big step over the last few years from IQ to EQ and making sure that you know you're a, you're a place that supports risk taking. You're a place that doesn't hold people accountable to mistakes. So long as they're learning from them, they know it's all productive for the future. Um, so the people that haven't done that, the people who haven't nurtured that that uh, risk taking. Um, open accountability, um, ownership type um, uh, culture. Uh, they're the ones that will be finding the um, the chickens come home to roost at the moment because you've you've got to have a, a team that is is really well set, and you've got to make sure that you, you've led these people to a place where they're not afraid that if um, if something goes wrong, that they're going to be held one hundred percent responsible for it. Um, you've mm-hmm. got to make sure that your your people are, are, are you know. It's all very well calming them down about what's going on externally, but they can't be afraid of what's going on internally as well. Um, so yeah, being being calm and considerate as well. I mean, that's uh, that's gen- genuinely the most important part of leadership for me. Um, at starting out as a leader, 100%, I was absolutely dreadful, um, and I think a lot of people have this in their in their business life. Um, uh, when you first step up to being a leader, you, there is so much to learn because it is such a broad thing. And if you were to go away to a library and look up books on um, on leadership, um, you you wouldn't know where to start because it, it, it's such a broad category that there there are many different aspects of it that have been picked and chosen about. And any one of those, you could say, oh yeah, that's what a leader is. But ultimately, it's that that being calm and being considerate and being compassionate that you have to remove emotion from any situation and think about things logically and think about um, how um, what outcomes you're after and how you can really make the best of any situation. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Martin. And it's interesting that you say um, as well um, about this um, idea of making mistakes and learning from them. Would you say that it's possible to actually be a good leader without making mistakes first and getting things wrong? Good Lord, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, no, to me, that that's a... Um that, that would be starting from a, from an utter fallacy. It, it's <laughs> so when it, when you're leading, you you need to have your tribe around you 100. percent You need to have those mentors, those people that have gone there and made those mistakes before. And so there is there is some um, value in in learning from other people's mistakes. Yes, absolutely. But if you think that you're going to launch into leadership and never make any mistakes and always be right, um, you're you're in for a big fall, and you're, you're potentially in for a lot of people that don't like you as well. <laughs> Just mm. putting it putting it bluntly. I think it's very sound advice uh, giving um, somebody um, this idea that they need to surround themselves as a leader with positive people and people that they can learn from as part of that team. Um, but if you were to advise somebody who were, was about to start their first day in a leadership role, is that the uh, the biggest piece of advice that you give them or would you tell them something different? Learn, learn, learn. That's, that's all you can do. When, when, you're, when you're building your team, when you're building your tribe, you've got Everybody who is who is uh, following the strategy that you've sent out, you know, you've you've put your head above the forest. You've you've worked out that which which jungle you want to be in, um, and you've worked out the path that you want to take. Everybody else can can um, um, keep themselves busy creating that path and making their way towards it. But it's up to you to uh, to learn as much as you can. Uh, data gather, 
process the data, and then make those decisions that will change your strategic course. So, so no, just learn as much as possible. As a leader, it is your responsibility to be the learner and then to bring that back to the team and then to, you know, the old phrase is you, you don't want to be a superman, you want to create superman, supermen. Um, so you, you bring the learning back to the team and you've got to make sure that you're coaching each and every one of the people you are individually responsible for so that they, they can raise up and they can become little leaders in themselves. Um, and especially like ours in a growing business, you're, you're, never, you're, you're never training people to do their job. You're training people to do your job. And so you can take that next step up. And so you can continually build the structure underneath you. Um, and so maybe that's why I'm so vague about it. Is the nature of leadership for me is always changing mm-hmm. as we go level upon level up. Absolutely. And being able to help people flourish, as it were, um, is that also another skill as a leader that you develop throughout time and through experience, as opposed to something that you're just sort of born with an innate skill for? Yeah, I don't think there's there's really ever been a born leader. Yes, there's been people who have been born charismatic, people who have been born passionate. Um, but no, I, I don't think uh, a leader is, is truly born. It's something that always develops. And um, if people are making that first step out into their leadership journey, then tell you, Take um, a bit of fractal thinking away. <laughs> Take away um, uh, what other levels you've been leading at, whether it's your family, whether it's your five-a-side football team, whether it's your, your chess team. Um, look, at, look at those other places where you, you've had to be a leader. And it's, you're in a constantly developing role. You never just move into it and, oh, I know how to do this and, and this is the best way to do it and we will never change. Um, because if you're not constantly improving yourself and your your role as a leader, then uh, then really you're stuck in the mud and there's nowhere to go. Mm, really interesting point. And um, are there any um, examples of um, leadership figures or just experiences that you've had throughout your life that have helped influence your style of leadership? Would you say, Martin? Uh, again, I think it goes back to the, the the stage of leadership that people are at. Um, but when when people talk about leaders, I mean, uh, I always. Personally, and I don't know if it's the um, the background I'm from. I'm from a farming background, and uh, which is very patriarchal, and everyone focuses on legacy. Um, but if you look on leaders from the from the past, you look at people like they'll take you way back and go to uh, Diocletian, who um, is one of my favourites. He's the only Roman emperor to ever retire. Um, he uh, he retired to a farm in Croatia. Um, the uh, the other Byzantine tetrarchy heads came back to him and said, oh, things are getting a bit messy. Could you come back and help us? And he said, if you saw my cabbages, you would know not to ask that question, um, mm. which is a lovely story. And he's really looked after the legacy there. But um, uh, if you look a little bit closer at it, you'll see that Diocletian was, uh, um, he actually murdered his way into the, <laughs> into the seat of, a, of an emperor um, and also retired to a farm which was half the city of Split. So uh, not a bad life, but um, it's a very nice uh, mythology that he built up around him. And so when people talk about leaders and how they've impacted them, they look to society. And again, it it tends to be, um, a, there's, there's a bit of idolatry that, that, that circles around it. And you look at these these great leaders and, and they're, they, um, they are the figureheads, yes. But a lot of the time, they're just great marketeers people that have sold a legacy um, and looked after it and made sure that people know the story rather than all of the mistakes and all of the messiness that has come behind it. Um, in my personal life, I've come across many different um, kinds of leadership that, you know, you can, you can point back to the, um, the, the Maxwell levels of leadership. Um, I've definitely come across a few of those uh, position people at the bottom level of leadership where they just feel like they can, uh, they can railroad you into decisions because they are the leader. That's their job title. You must follow. Otherwise, there's going to be consequences. But those people are always so short term in their leadership life. Mm. 
Um, and and if you really want to make a long legacy of it, you need to to get to that level five, that pinnacle. You need to sell a dream. And so it has to be, um, you, yeah, in, in being a leader, you can't just be the person who wears the big shoulder pads and, and kicks a few bums every now and again. You really have to be the person who is who is in charge of marketing um, a, a, a different way of operating to anybody um, and convincing them so that they will follow you, um, not because they have to, because they really want to. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there, Martin. It's so much more being a leader than just being at the head of a draconian regime, as it were. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, but before we do wrap things up, uh, Martin, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself for Dealey Fumigation and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly beyond um, the COVID-19 outbreak as well. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll start within the COVID nineteen outbreak. I mean, with with fumigation, we we've, we've been focusing on pivoting. Believe it or not, I mean, we do a lot a lot for food production, and we do a lot for food processing. And so, we consider that 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 sort of work is is absolutely essential to make sure we're getting it absolutely right to support the country during this outbreak to make sure that everybody's got enough food during these um uh, periods. Well, unprecedented gets thrown around a lot, doesn't it? These unprecedented periods of people uh, uh, panic buying. Uh, hoarding food, all of that sort of thing, making sure that um, all of the, the, the food processing routes remain open. Um, and we've been doing a, a, a lot of work as well, um, going into uh, sanitization. Uh, we've got the tools here, we've got the training here, and we've got the uh, got the ability to um, go and do wider uh, sanitization. So it, it, as, a, as a leader in this situation, I think it's very important to just see what you can offer the country to help it through in this in this outbreak. Um, and then beyond COVID nineteen, yeah, we're, we're we're sticking to what we've uh, what we've always stuck to. We're um, uh, none of us are getting fat, none of us are getting comfortable. We've always got to make sure that we're out of our comfort zone. And I'll continue on with my uh, my coaching, my building of leaders here, um, and uh, and really um, uh, developing a, a company that can uh, give back so much more into our community. It's certainly food for thought that this um, mentality of keeping yourself out of your comfort zone, keeping yourself occupied and really gauging what you can give back during this time. And I think if we do harness that spirit as well, even throughout the other side of this outbreak, then we'll be in a very good place when that upward trajectory comes. Um, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure. The leaders Um, of the country. Let's go. Exactly. Um, It's been a pleasure, Martin, having you on the programme and really insightful as well. And um, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in a few months to look at all of this retrospectively and just see how these hopes have been born out thank you so much for taking the time to come on today good old boy it's been a pleasure thank you it's been wonderful martin um coming up next on the program we'll be handing over to jonathan white for his exclusive interview with england cricket legend sir andrew strauss i hope you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan enjoyed speaking with sir andrew that's coming up now hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. 
Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here. 
here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holy Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. because I Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died, 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it if you if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your Mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say... But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re- wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, so I should 
and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.